Genesis Foundation. Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello. Hello. Can I please speak with Melvin Gibbs? This would be him. Melvin, what a pleasure to have you on the call. Thank you so much for being part of the Quarantine Tapes, which is co-presented by Onassis LA and DubLab. I'm, I'm really, really excited to speak to you. I've discovered your work and I wonder why it took me so long, but it is absolutely marvelous to speak to you. Tell me, Melvin, if you could tell me where I find you and how you've been spending these past 17 or 18 months of this delirious time. I know that it's been marked by, by many, many occasions, and you, you might tell us a few. Well, at this moment, you will find me in South Minneapolis, Minnesota, mm. not too far from one of the sort of iconic places in American history at this point. So last 16, 17 months have been a very interesting journey. The first part of it was, you know, getting used to the idea of a new form of existence. You know, for me, it was tough because I already had some health issues that I was somewhat apprehensive about before that. Then when it hit, I had to get really much more focused. I mean, the best, the good thing is that I'm actually drastically healthier than I was before everything started. And so, you know, I spent the first part of the you know, the pandemic is thinking about nature and our inadequate response to it. But then in May, things kind of changed. And it just so happened that, uh, you know, on May 25th, I was kind of thinking about what I, you know, the fact that it was my birthday and I was going to just kind of be home and not really doing anything. Yes. And then, you know, found out what's going on in Minneapolis, and that kind of became everybody's focus for a while, and my focus as a creative as well as, you know, my focus as a person, you know, my child, you know, my child calling me from, well, child is, is incorrect because they're 21 now. My foster <laughs> brain calling me. Yeah, they always are. Calling me, <laughs> calling me from the Brooklyn Bridge talking about the cops. The fact that the cops had like cordoned off the bridge and the, the protesters were having trouble getting off the bridge, all you know, all of these kind of things. And, you know, that is kind of like level one. These days, you know, since the, the vaccine has happened, you know, and people are starting to move around again, I'm starting to get into the idea that uh, I might actually have be able to do what I. Well, let me put it this way: I told people when the pandemic is that my job description international touring musician was going to be obsolete for the next year so that obsolescence is starting to ease off i actually went to italy two weeks ago so kind of getting used to moving around again and uh getting used to having uh uncomfortable things stuck up my nose 
multiple times. I know, I know. I, I was in Europe myself. I, I, I don't think I've been tested so much ever since I took exams at the university. Yeah, so that's kind of like, you know, you can take a breath and you can kind of, you know, direct to, to the particulars, but that's like sort of like a highlight reel. But, you know, the highlight reel um, is, is filled with unsaid things until we unpack them a little bit together, Melvin. You, you told me where you find yourself at this moment, and I'm, you know, I'm reminded of the great line of Octavia Butler, who said, all good things must begin from a journal entry. And you released an EP on May 25th, uh, 2021, the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, titled 4 plus 1 equals 5 for May 25th. And this is what you said. People need to hear this. In the statement you issued along the EP, you wrote, the vibe I felt in June of 2020 when I was standing in George Floyd Square at the intersection of 28th and Chicago in Minneapolis is something I've only felt once before. That place was a grove outside of the A-bomb dome in Peace Memorial Park in Hiroshima, Japan. So when I say that the intersection of 28th and Chicago and Minneapolis is American ground zero, I am not using hyperbole or metaphor. Melvin, tell me more. Tell me more. When I read this, um, it really was something. And I, I, I just have to have you unpack it a little bit for, for myself and anybody and everybody. And there'll be a lot of people listening to this. Well, that's just it. I mean, it's interesting because you don't think, well, a few different things. I mean, as I said in there, you know, the course of my life, I've been in there, meaning the essay that goes along with the record. I've been, over the course of my life, visited a lot of supposedly holy places. You know, I've been to various temples, been to, you know, various uh, ashrams and temples in India, you know, been to voodoo ceremonies, all these different kind of things. So over the course of my life, I've kind of experienced different sort of way people create space that they call sacred. Right. I mean, what happened in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder was the people of Minneapolis and the people of America spontaneously kind of created this holy space that's the equal of any other place I've been. And it was really moving for me. And Maybe the most interesting thing about it talking to you now is that I probably wouldn't even have noticed if I hadn't had been to all these other places. And right, right. Especially, by, you know, by contrast. Yes, by contrast. And especially, you know, going to Hiroshima, which is at the risk of, you know, offending people who look at history different than I do. I mean, if you're going to talk, talk in terms of crimes against humanity. I mean, killing, you know, a couple of hundred thousand people that literally had nothing to do with the machinations of the world's government, that that's pretty high up there. And for it to have a similar feeling in terms of how the people responded to it, that's the best way to put it. You know, Japan's, the people of Japan's response to this thing happening to them was, you know, to build among, among the many other things, it was to kind of make this space where people could reflect on what happened and hopefully make sure it never happens again and even reflect on their own culpability, you know, in 
you know, the kind of violence, the cycle of violence that put themselves in that position. And I felt like, you know, it was a very similar situation in, you know, at the corner of 38th in Chicago, because you just have these people here who are just going there and they're reflecting and they're looking and they're thinking about themselves and, you know, the country in a way they kind of never really had before, you know what I mean? And it's, it's kind of went across, I, I can't say across the world, but like, like I said, my experience in New York with, you know, you know, my, my offspring running out in the streets right. with, you know, thousands of other people to just say, look, we're not putting up with this. And in the, and go to the place where it happened and just feel this other kind of like, yo, the world, you know, all the things that hippies have always sung about, like, we need peace. It's there, you know, and it's, I kind of look at it as a look into the psyche of the people who have been most affected by that, which is African-Americans and also the people of the country as a whole who have to grapple with this and some don't want to let go of the old way, some want to bring it in new ways and that's the whole struggle around this. It provoked you uh, and it provoked you to also create work um, around, around this encounter, nearly an epiphany of sorts because unlike some other holy places you've been to, it's just, and I use that in quotation marks, of course, it's just an intersection. And it provoked you to create at that intersection work. Can you, can you say something about that work and what it provoked you to do? And, and there you are again back there now, as I call you. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about it, right? It's kind of like we live our lives and then you have these peak moments and now, okay, now it's a new life. You know, and that's kind of what happened there. And it's, you know, I wrote a song back in the 80s called uh, Howard Beach Memoirs that was about a young man who got killed in Queens. You know, I read even before that, I read that the last time the troops were called out in New York State for a riot was in 1945. And it was because the cops had killed a, a black man at home. So we're talking about something that's been going on for, you know, before my lifetime, and I'm not a kid anymore. But for some reason, this was the one that finally people finally said, look, you know, okay, you know, we this you, you have gone too far this time. And whether this will turn into lasting change is a different story. It's yeah. the question of, okay, it was a, a moment where people just decided, look, we have to look at the world differently right now. And one of the things that moved me to write music was because we were in the middle of the pandemic, uh, a lot of the older folk were locked down, you know, because they were the ones who were more susceptible to disease. So it was really kids out in the street doing the, the hard work, you know what I mean? And the kids were out there doing the thing the way they did it, not the way we people of my generation necessarily would have asked them to. Right. And for how that reflected on me was just in terms of the music, you know, because, you know, gospel music wasn't necessarily the appropriate music, even like the 60s protest music wasn't necessarily the appropriate music. So what ended up happening is that in New York City, anyway, the kids started repurposing the current popular songs. And... When I say popular music, it needs to be noted that the popular music is hip-hop. You know, it's not like pop-pop. So they took artists named Pop Smoke, who's sort of, uh, you know, I guess 
normal people would put him under the rubric of gangster rap, new gangster rap. Anyway, he's a kid from normal you know, normal people. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, it's it's more nuanced than that. And of it's, course, it's, you know, it's, you know, so that's part of it. You know, that's that's the interesting thing about it is that the, the kids decided to nuance it. I mean, that was they, they, the kids all know his songs, so they started chanting his songs because they all know them and they're and they're motivational in a certain kind of way. You know, I would say that you know people. Who, I, I used to always use the term uh, street entrepreneurs. So, you know, street entrepreneurs have to be motivated. So their music is always motivational. So his music has that motivational uh, aura to it. And they just changed the, the lyrics to reflect the political reality of the time. And I thought that was a really interesting sort of bonding mechanism that the, the youth of the city used. And I, it also showed me that there was room to make some other music that was more appropriate to the moment. I mean, of course, other rap artists made songs and other people made songs, but I think where I had place to put a voice was some, uh, someone of a, an older generation who had kind of been through the struggle in a different kind of way and didn't necessarily feel the need to put my interpretation of what the struggle should look like on the kids. It was more kind of like, okay, I see you kids are moving let's move together and this is how I can help you because I've been through this before and when you're moving, don't go there, go here. It's kind of what I wanted to do with the record. When you're moving, don't go there, go here. That's really such an interesting way of putting things in. Melvin, in preparing to, to speak with you, I've, I've now listened to you, of course, uh, looked at your artwork, of course, and read you, of course, as well, and you have, you have, in my view, very deep things to say about the simple question, and simple questions never really get quite a simple answer, particularly when they are profound, like, what is jazz, which is something that you've, you've pondered in many different ways um, over, over a long time now, and it brings us naturally to, to what I think anybody would say jazz is part of, which is improvisation. And I, I myself always love quoting a early 20th century French writer, Pierre Macroland, who said that improvisation is something you prepare. And of course, you prepare it to a point. But what, what interests me so much in, in what you've written about jazz is both your, let's say, pushing against this notion of jazz and improvisation as being one and the same thing, and then also the notion of what improvisation might mean for an African-American as a, as a way of living, as a necessary way of living, and that necessary way of living doesn't only occupy the stage. Can you help us understand this a little bit better? And I think it, in many ways it curtails beautifully with that intersection you you found yourself on uh, not so long ago. Yes, well, I, I would have to say that my answer to what is improvisation would be diametrically opposed to uh, that the one that you read. I don't think that if it's truly an improvisation, you can't really prepare for it. And it's much more a question of how do you uh, put your mind in a place where you can do something that you not, you haven't never prepared for before. Right. I mean, I guess the closest that I've seen in terms of writings from other people, you know, in other cultures around the world is like, you know, certain Zen masters, this one uh, Korean master in particular, talking about the don't know mind and talking about put it all down 
and just what the world looks like when you're just looking at it. And there's a great jazz musician who passed a few months ago. His name is Milford Graves, who I had the good fortune to sit with and I actually wrote an essay for him. He did an art show at a place called the ICA Institute for Contemporary Arts in Philadelphia a few months ago. And the catalog will be coming out next year. And I wrote an essay for the catalog. And in the process of speaking to him, one of his conceits is that he, he feels like African-Americans are naturally Zen masters, you know, because we have to kind of sit in this space that's of, of non-preparation a long time. But having said that, yes, of course, you, you're never truly coming to anything like you've never done it before, like even this conversation. You know, this is the first time we're speaking, but of course we're using a language that we both share. That's right. And that we've had, you know, decades of practice. And so in that sense, yeah, there is a basis. But the moment itself is you can't prepare for, uh, or you can prepare for, but true improvisation is really kind of letting go of your preparation in a kind of way. And the conceit of, you know, that I, that I work with a lot is that for better or worse, African-Americans were over the course of history forced to develop that skill. I don't look at it as some sort of uber power of the black race or whatever. I look at it as a, a contingency because of the position we found ourselves in, that we've learned how to develop this sort of way of looking at things in the moment. And one of the things I thought about uh, this morning is there's a very famous uh, sort of black theorist uh, named France Fanon, Fanon, however you pronounce it, you know, depending on your culture, was a psychotherapist from the French Antilles. And his whole thing was, one of his riffs was that he thought the blues would disappear. Right. Because he felt that as, as Africans in the West and in Africa, as their lives evolved, this sort of improvisatory pain that we all have to deal with on a daily basis would go away. So I, I say that to say that it's a circumstantial thing. It's not an inherent thing, but it's a circumstantial thing that we all share as a people. So, and that to me informs this, you know, that's why you see these forms happening and you see forms renewing themselves. You know, you, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, European music, okay, we've made a great form of music and we keep it and we build on it. And it's not like Indian music, okay, we've made this incredible music and we keep building on it. It's more like, okay, what does the moment require us to do? Right. Okay, I, the moment needed this and now something moment needs something else and now we have to make something else. And that's, we just keep doing that. You know, it, it reminded me of a moment um, when I had a chance to interview Jay-Z at the, at the New York Public Library and he um, sort of unpacked many of his songs, uh, which for me was very interesting and particularly uh, the song 99 Problems and spoke about how, how quickly, how quickly on his feet he had to, to react to a situation that involved, um, you know, an encounter with, with the police. And that, that made me think of the kind of quick judgment, if one can call it that, which may be a form of improvisation that you need in order to, I mean, basically to survive as, as an African-American in the United States. Yes, that's it in a nutshell. You know, you, you, you distilled it down to one sentence. And as a matter of fact, in my writings, I talk directly about that fact. I mean, I, I did a count back in the old O's 
at that point, I'd already been stopped by the police 250 times. So now I have gray in my hair and gray in my beard, and I don't get stopped nearly as often, but I still get stopped. And each time I have to look at it like each time it's improvisation. Each time is different. The person is different. The situation is different. I can approach them in a more arrogant way now, you know, it's, or less arrogant. Every, you know, it's like nothing, but nothing I've done before is valid for what has to happen in that particular moment. And that's the thing that, you know, that's kind of like, that's, that's the thing that where jazz comes from is that same space, that kind of ability to think like that, uh, apply to music. And yes, hip hop as well, you know, it's, it's a difference with Jay-Z because Jay-Z is actually sitting down and reflecting after. It's the same basic process, but it, you know, as, as a friend of mine, as, as a musician said, it's a question of how, how it operates in time. Right. If you're doing it in the moment, it's jazz. If you're doing it in, in reflection, it's composition, and it can be something else. But it's the same process. In in um, preparing to speak with you, Melvin, um, I've I've been so amazed and delighted that I would speak to someone who has been working with so many musicians that I've loved, uh, some who I've spoken to, like David Byrne, but but also Caetano Veloso. I never got to speak to Caetano Veloso, but I did get to speak to Gilberto Gil one extraordinary night at the New York Public Library where actually Jesse Norman was in, in the audience and I brought both of them together to work together on stage for the first time. And I'm just wondering, as I speak to you, um, among those musicians and others, if you could in some way tell us some of the people who the feeling has been perhaps the deepest. And I'm I'm thinking also of of the question that Sasha Frere Jones asked me to ask you, which is to to tell us a little bit the importance of of uh, Blood Alma and Ronald Chan and Jackson and the entire homologic movement around Ornette in in the 70s and 80s, which he feels has been obfuscated and nearly forgotten. All right, I'll, I'll do that in two parts. I'll, I know I'll, my, my, my I'll questions are endless. <laughs> well, I'll stick. I'll, I'll go. For, I'll jump from Brazil, then I'll go back. To okay. America. I mean, as Thank far you. as the person who I'm the most, in terms of most inspirational people that I've played with, I mean, the two I would say the two are Caetano and Sonny Chirac. Uh Caetano is just a genius in terms of how he works with the audience. What he can do by himself, I mean, he's—I mean, he's just really special. And it's funny you mentioned Jill. I mean, one of my regrets was I was actually supposed to record with Jill, but just the timing of when they wanted to make the record and what I was going at in with my career at the moment just didn't allow it. But Jill is also very—you know—he's seminal just in terms of how he's maneuvered over the course of his career. I know, and, and he's, you know, such a, you know, he's such a gentleman, too. And, you know, he, he was Minister of Culture for a while, so there, there are all kinds of special connections. I mean, he, he and Caetano together just... I saw them at BAM at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and as you said, it was just the two of them. No amplification. Yeah. 2,091 people in silence, I mean, just listening to them, you understood what attention meant then. We could just do a, a, a show, or usually do a whole show of me talking about Caetano. Another very important person for me is Sonny Chirac, who now people are talking about because of this uh, movie that's out now. The uh, 
one about the Harlem Festival. Yeah, the uh, the Questlove movie. The Questlove thing, yeah. His solo was one of the breakout moments in that movie. <laughs> I know, Summer of Soul. Huh? Yeah, Summer of Soul, exactly. Exactly, yes. And Summer of Soul, he's like one of the breakout characters. <sighs> and he, he was just seminal for me just in terms of what exactly you see in that movie. He was just himself and he taught me how to be. He, he freed me to 100% be myself. But that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had the experience of being around the whole community that grew up around Ornette Coleman and what he, when he was living in Soho on Prince Street back in the you know 70s and early 80s. And that set of musicians is just uh, you know underappreciated and extremely important. I mean James Butler in particular, because for me he's the person who kind of bridged the different aspects of what I was hearing in the music because he had this thing that, okay, on the surface, if you hear it, it sounds like the blues, but it's not really the blues because it's kind of beyond that. On the other hand, it's abstract, but it's not abstract. It's abstract in the way like please abstract. Uh, you know, it's like, it's very, it's abstract and it's simple. You can count. It's not, you don't need to use your, your whole brain to understand what he's doing if you just kind of let go and just follow it and it's the same with with shannon jackson the drummer who basically kind of taught me a lot of what taught is the wrong word who allowed me to participate in the process of learning how to play the music and facilitated a lot of my growth as a musician myself and one of my good friends from the neighborhood a man named vernon reed who later went on to become famous with his own band living color you know, he brought us both in when we were little kids living with our mothers. And we took what we had learned in our neighborhood from our mentors who were, you know, we had the fortunate, good fortune of being mentored by some of the great jazz musicians of the time, a lot of, of quite a few who now teach at the new school. Who are they? Well, Reggie Workman was one of my first big teachers. Right. And there was a community uh, organization that was during the time of when there was lots of community organizing and there was a community organization in Brooklyn called the muse that had classes, you know, whether it was poetry and music and a lot of the great jazz musicians of Brooklyn participated in giving lessons to the kids. And Reggie Workman was the one who taught acoustic bass there and he taught, you know, the kids, you know, me and all of my friends basically how to play bass. So it's like those guys, and they steeped us in the music in a different way because, you know, we came up listening to the music. I came up listening to funk and rock and, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in is a large Caribbean community. So I'm, you know, listening to whether it was reggae or salsa, all, all of the different musics from the Caribbean as well as the music. So I came up with it. But then we all, because of being around people like Reggie, we all had basis in jazz. So, for me, it was always a question of, I always wanted to be much more exploratory than a bunch of my friends. A lot of my friends became really sort of high-powered studio musicians and played on many hit records. I was kind of like the sort of misfit of the neighborhood because I just always wanted to do something different. And uh, I was really drawn to Ornette's music before I knew who he was. And through a friend, I was able to meet him. And Ornette, you know, I can say, you know, without bring back a dose of something that kind of saw me as a kindred spirit and kind of brought me into the community. I mean, he already had a bunch of great musicians there, so it wasn't like I was going to come in and 
replace anybody who was there. But he kind of added me to the crew and, you know, allowed me to kind of come through. You know, I'd, I'd go to the house and we'd rehearse or whatever and kind of learn his thoughts about music, which now at this point in my life, I kind of really understand in a much different way, just in terms of what he was saying. As I told people, it's like the thing I realize now is Ornette was not trying to be avant-garde or trying to be a genius. He was just trying to really just do something really simple, which is just to communicate into something. As I said, like, you know, like clear something, just trying to communicate really profound things in a simple way, you know, it's kind of like... But how this thing... Kind of, yeah, yes. And that's the thing, the proof is in the pudding with him is his melodies. His melodies are all incredible. And he was just trying to communicate to other people, okay, you can do this, but this is how you do it. And so, and to other people, it seemed like this sort of cryptic thing on it broke all the rules of music, whatever. But yeah, I mean, you're not going to come up with something like great if you follow the rules. Right, <laughs> right. Know? It goes back to the thing I'm talking about, you know, about improv. Yeah, you got, it's the moment. It's not about what happened before. It's not about, okay, you know, the noun follows the verb or whatever. Okay, so you put four verbs in a row that, it, that you make this the statement you wanted to make or not. You know, that's what that's what it comes down to. You know, you, you know um, listening to you and listening to you talk about the community you were brought into uh, reminded me of a moment, Melvin, which I will treasure forever, which was when a few months ago for the quarantine tapes, I had occasion to to speak with Sonny Rollins. And I asked him, you know, a question about influence, which is always a tricky question. And I, I prefer the notion of lineage, but anyway, without going into semantics about all of that. And I said, you know, when you were seven years old, you got to, to meet Coleman Hawkins. And, you know, he gave the sound we had at first of the saxophone to jazz and blah, 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 and all of that. And I said, but Sonny, would it make any sense to say that you, you were influenced in any form or fashion by Coleman Hawkins? And he paused Melvin for two seconds and said... I hope so. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, because Coleman was a, he was a genius. I mean, yeah. I mean, and you know, now at this point, it's like now you point, you look, you can look at it the way you look at Bach. You can sit down and analyze what he did. Say, okay, person X did this in such and such a way, and Coleman Hawkins did that. But he took an instrument that had nothing to do with, you know, the experience that he came up under and he made it speak a language that it wasn't designed to speak and talk about things it wasn't designed to talk about. I mean, this, yeah, I mean, I, I hope, hopefully I'm in the lineage of Coleman Hawkins. Right, but, I, mean, but I, terms... I, I think it's just something so beautiful in terms of, well, there's something so humble, uh, you know, with Sonny at 90 saying that. And there's something also so important in, when I heard it and it, you know, it, it, it really, it really moved me that this, the, you know, a deep notion of the elders, um, not, yeah. not the elderly, but the elders, which, which brings me very much in, in a way, it's a segue I really didn't think would happen is, is your deep uh, rooted um, study really of certain trends in philosophy and, and the ways in which 
studying those trends in philosophy and those influences in philosophy have made you also understand perhaps uh, the pandemic and this moment uh, we're living through in a different way, looking at our, our relationship filled with hubris um, for nature, filled with the, the desire that in some way we control it. And, and you've said in, in your writings that the virus gave us a reset. And I'm wondering at this moment, a year and a half into it, um, how, how, you, how you're thinking about uh, this moment. And if, if um, I, don't like, I don't love the word hopeful, but l let's use it just for shorthand. If, if, you, if you think something will have been learned and when we go back to what passes for normal, what normal might look like or what you hope it might look like. Well, I think, I mean, I'm on one hand, I'm hopeful, but I think I still see a lot of the same hubris I saw a year and a half ago in just in terms of this idea that we're in, at war with the virus. I mean, no one has ever defeated Mother Nature in anything. No humans. Humans will never defeat Mother Nature. So going to war with Mother Nature is a losing battle. And I think that that keeps getting shown again and again. People look at the virus as if it's something they can negotiate with, like they're negotiating for, a, you know, a, a, a contract to build a building or something. You know, the virus, it, it's an intelligent, you know, whether it's a life form or something that science can be, but it's obviously an intelligence. And it's going to operate the way that it operates. And until the day, you can see, you know, looking around the world, which people have accepted that that's the case and which people haven't. And I think that we're looking at a long arc of people around the world getting to some level of acceptance with non-human intelligence. And, that, and that's where it kind of bleeds into, like, current trends in philosophy because, you know, it's this whole, you know, turn this whole turn in all worlds about, uh, you know, uh, objects, being interested in objects and, as, as an area of inquiry. And my thing has always been, again, as you, as you said, talking about the elders and talking about this in the past, I mean, this is not just an African thought, which is, you know, where I'm most interested in, but in most uh, non-European thought, you know, that there are other tough intelligences besides our own and besides the highest intelligence, you know, there's not just two levels of intelligence. It's not just like God and humans. Everything just, there's, you know, some people believe everything is intelligence. Some believe that there are levels of intelligence. But there's an acceptance that the world speaks back to you. Right. You know what I mean? And I think, yeah. you know, and I think that that's the thing that I watch. I think the world is still struggling with the people that should think in an industrial kind of way, that they're still struggling with the idea that the world is speaking back to them. So we keep having these problems come again and again. But having said that, I think that it's not going to happen overnight, but I think there are a lot of people, especially in the beginning, I think the thing that, stru that struck a lot of people, at least, you know, in, in the small, you know, as I used to always tell my child, your friends are not a random survey, but in the subset of people that I know, the thing that struck a lot of people was when everything shut down and the rivers cleared up and animals started reappearing in cities. I think that, you know, thinking the next big subject was this climate change. I think people are going to think about that differently. So in that sense, I am hopeful because yeah. I believe that people re realize that, yes, you know, even if even if you want to frame this thing as some sort of military expedition, that 
there are other problems that we have to grapple with that we can't stick our head in the sand about anymore. The the big question, um, because it's a word you use, is the word reset. And um, you know, I keep I keep like you probably um, thinking. Let's hope. Um, let's hope in the sense that when I spoke with Bernie Krauss uh, early on in the quarantine tapes, he was you know he collects sounds and has been doing so for forty or fifty years, and he was so happy near San Francisco to to hear sounds of birds he hadn't heard in forty or fifty years. And he was just, you know, it's a bit like if Alan Lomax came back and would hear certain things that he had recorded so long ago. And there was something so beautiful about about thinking, you know, we can we can live differently. And it always reminds me of, you, you, you probably know I'm a bit of a cultomaniac by profession, but there's this wonderful line of Ursula Le Guin where she says, we live in capitalism, its power seems inescapable, but sen then so did the divine rights of kings. Any human power yeah. can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begins in art, very often in our own art, the art of words. I think these are words that could have been spoken by Melvin Gibbs. Yes, I 100%. You know, yes, I, 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 I second everything in that statement. I, in, I think that, yes, capitalism is a choice. Uh, I spent, a, my child's mother is Norwegian. I spent a lot of time in Scandinavia. I am very much aware that there are different ways of dealing with the system that we live under that can be much more humane than the system that we have chosen for ourselves. I believe that it won't be an easy evolution, but I believe in the same, I believe, you know, like the kids out in the street, Those kids are going to grow, you know, they're going to eventually take over, you know, and I think that that's part of the struggle we're seeing now is that the people who don't want to share have to deal with the people who actually understand that sharing is important. Even here in Minneapolis, I think on another level, one of the things that happened was people thought about food differently because you find out, you know, even, you know, I'm a vegetarian, but, you know, if you, you eat meat. There was a meat shortage, and you find out because it's basically like there's three companies that have like at maximum 20 places in America where the majority, vast majority of the meat is processed. So this idea of that there has to be this large sort of distribution, centralized distribution mechanism is something else that's going to be looked at. People are going to look much more, you know, at connecting directly with, with farmers, connecting directly with everything and i think that that m removing of the middle will allow for a more i mean a, a more equitable version of this system that we have i don't necessarily see the system that we have disappearing but i mean if i had a vote i would change it but <laughs> i'm not the only person voting <laughs> there's no like 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 the court says there are no kings But I think we're going to look where we are in that sense, in terms of what a reset looks like. Yes, in, in the medium term, there is going to definitely be a reset in terms of how people look at distribution, whether it's distribution of food or distribution of income. Yes, I believe that that is going to happen. Melvin, um, had we but world enough in time, I, I would want to talk to you not only more about Caetano Veloso, not only more about so many musicians and artists like 
Matthew Barney, who I had occasion once to speak to, uh, or Arthur yeah. Jaffer, who I hope I will be able to speak to, or, or the work you've done with scientists, uh, a project which seems so fantastically interesting, God Particle, which I, I would love to love to hear more about. And I'm hoping, you know, this conversation will lead to to many more conversations because I feel there's there's so much more to talk about. I will I will end on a on a perhaps a little bit lighter note um, with a with a question that Sasha Frere Jones had, which was really um, he's wondering why. Uh, body meta is so good. Uh, you know, Sasha Fred Jones was on a, on the program, and you've you've been working with him as well as with Greg Fox and Gray McMurray, and he's just wondering why are we so good? I think we're so good because it, I think part of it is you know the freshness of it, you know, but the freshness in and of itself wouldn't have made it good. It's four individuals who are letting each other be individuals <laughs> as opposed, you know, so we'll see how that evolves as, as the group grows and we have, and we kind of move more into more kind of traditional, you know, musical composition structures. I mean, on a basic level, I just think, as I was saying earlier, we, we share a lot of language and, you know, I think that this combination of people talking makes a very unique conversation that another set of people wouldn't have made. And I think that that's why it's so good. I mean, it's, it's a very individual band. I was very happy the first time we played together. I mean, me and Sebastian have talked for years about doing stuff. And when he mentioned that he was going to do this thing, I, was telling you, I just, you know, we just did it. And yes, it's, it's really good. I'm very happy with it. And I'm very happy that, um, you know, it's getting the response in, in the world that it's getting because that's the thing, you know, creative, you know when you've done something great. What you don't know is if anybody else is going to care. Right. right. And, you know, so fortunately in this situation, they have cared. Melvin, is there a musician um, you, you really would like to, to play with or an artist you really would like to work with that you haven't so far? Haven't? <sighs> you know, because for me, for instance, they're, they're people alive still I would love to talk to, like Tom Waits, perhaps, um, mm -hmm. uh, or Arthur Jaffa, as I mentioned, or people I really, you know, and mm -hmm. in, in my case, it's so much, at this stage in my life, wisdom really seems to matter more and more. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're, Leonard Cohen would have been someone, and I missed him, and uh, Barry Lopez. And, I mean, there, there are a few people I really would have loved to talk to. And... Mm -hmm. um, is there someone when you close your eyes or maybe leave them wide open? You say, I, I really. Oh, uh, well, I mean, it's funny. You, I, I'm not going to answer the question that you asked, but I'm going <laughs> to. Okay. <laughs> I Th mean, that's fair. I always tell people that among us in New York that everybody thinks is a genius, there's one person we think is a genius, and that's Arthur. That's AJ, Arthur Jaffa. And I am so incredibly happy. Like I just said earlier about, you know, you do something great and what you don't know is if everyone else is going to think it's great. I am so happy that the rest of the planet is getting to experience what we knew and that he's, his, his work is going around the planet and people are into, engaging with it the way that, you know, we engage with it, you know. So, I mean, so with him being in the position he's in, it's hard for me to think of anyone else 
I mean, if you think about art, he's right now, he's, you know, there's nobody, there's nobody, he's the top, you know? So it would be a question of, okay, is there somebody in music who's at that level that I haven't played with that's still around? That's an interesting question. I mean, it is, you know, some of the younger rappers I would love to come sit and shop it up with, you know? I, I've always found the whole art future music movement very interesting, you know? And I actually met, I'm sure they won't remember, but I actually ran into them. I think that was the first time they were in Europe, you know, chopped it up a little bit and it was kind of, you talk about elders, I found them very reminiscent of, uh, you know, a group of rappers that I knew, a group called Anti-Pop Consortium, you know what I mean? So I saw the connection there. I mean, it's going to sound arrogant, like, you know, there's nobody I want to work with. But I no, know I, 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 I don't think it sounds like that at all. I I, yeah, I, I, think, I I think you're I just trying to, to and and it's interesting to me that the people you would like to work with um, that you haven't quite named uh, a much younger generation. Yeah, no, because I kind of think I mean that's why one of, one of the things that I mean the stuff that that AJ that that Arthur's doing now is stuff that I heard him talk about thirty years ago. Right. You know what I mean? It's just like he's such a great mind that he was just so far ahead of the curve. And it's like that for like my whole set, my whole set of people. It's like all of us have these things we've been sitting off for, which is why he's going to be around for a while because it's not just something. His, his genius is not just something that he stumbled on, and it's like, oh, he got lucky, and maybe he's not going to be able to do it again. It's not that at all. It's like he's been thinking about this forever, and there are so many levels to it, and there's so many ways to operate within it. It's like. It's like he would be flying a spaceship through a galaxy. He could spend another hundred years making work, and you know, and it would it would be it would all be new, right. you know. So, when you mentioned that, I was thinking immediately of George Clinton and and Sun Ra and 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 what it what it might mean, you know, to be, which is a question I think that interests you, which certainly interests me as as I age, which is what does it mean to be timely? Yes. Yeah, that's the most important thing. That's the thing, you know, I mean, it's kind of like I'm having like a, people that kind of care about me more now, you know, and, it's, and, you know, that's the thing you learn when you when it's not your moment. Okay, the moment will come eventually, you know what I mean? So, but timeliness, yes, that's what, I mean, that's, you know, there's a whole philosophy built around time. Taoism, right. all right. timeliness. And, <laughs> and, and, and interestingly enough, we're back to improvisation. Yes. Right back to what's in the moment and what what the moment needs, you know. And it, but then it becomes a question of, you know, if it, you know, that you know, sometimes you do what the whole planet needs, and then that's when you're famous. And sometimes you do what you need, and you know, just you and your friends care. And that's that's the only, you know. And sometimes they come together, which is, you know, what we hope. You know, that's one thing when you have great things, whether it's you know Bob Dylan or. Tatano, and then we have these people who are great where their individual interests align with with the world as a whole's interest, and it just keeps and they, and they move together. And I mean, that was part of the reason I wrote for plus one equals five for May twenty five, simply because I just didn't see the the perk. You know, you know, I felt like, well, okay, no one's doing it, I got to do it. So it's, and I still sort of feel that way that you know it's. You know, I, I tell that to the to the guys in my band, Harriet Tubman. You know, it's like the great, you know, Cecil Taylor pass, Arnett pass. Okay, so now it's our turn. You know, and what, like it or not, we we kind of have to 
take the mantle of this thing. So it's not even a question of there's nobody who's great. There's plenty of great musicians out here, but there's no one who's really thinking that I've run across yet who thinks about all the things that I think about in the way I think about them. I mean, you know, among the set of people who think about things the way I think about them is author. And so I'm happy that I've, I get the opportunity to work with him, you know, so yeah, I'm going to sell the last thing. I actually have a record coming out next year on Editions Vigo, which is the soundtrack for one of his latest pieces. Oh, how exciting. So, how exciting. Yes. Melvin, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. You have no idea. Thank you so much. And I hope when we can, we, we meet in person maybe a whole evening with Caetano, yes. a whole evening with Caetano and, and what, it, what, what it means. Yeah, that would that would be great. And I appreciate the time. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you for asking. Thank you so much and take good care of yourself. And same to you. Bye bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support. 